and continue with our worship. <clears throat> the Old Testament reading is from the book of Ruth. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now, without resting even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds. And may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. 
And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask, for all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until this morning. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of, old, of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is a gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In this collection of stories that we chose for the summer series, the mixed tape, um, I have to say I was relieved to see that I get Ruth. It's such a good story, as opposed to Noah last week. Uh, and if you didn't hear that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to that. It was a really good setup for the whole summer. So Ruth is not nearly as tricky because Everyone in the book is good. All of them have good character. So there's not, I mean, we have some people who might be slightly better or gooder in a way, but everyone's making good decisions. And so it, you're, you're not finding these incredible tensions of what do we do with evil in the world kind of questions. It's not that kind of book. But we do want to make sure that we don't get lulled in by the bucolic scene that is in the book of Ruth. It takes place in Bethlehem. It's a town that straddles the hill country. It's only about five miles south of Jerusalem. It's farmer shepherding land. A lot of activity happens on the road, in the field. And when we let it be just a gentle story, 
then we're actually losing out on some of the power that is to be found in the book of Ruth. Because in this book, part of the essential quality is the tension of vulnerability, of powerlessness, and of generosity. And so we can't be lulled in by it being a simple story. We have to allow these characters to be complex, even if we know the whole framework is really quite good. Um, I will admit, it's a little intimidating. I feel a little nervous having to teach on Ruth, even though it's not a tricky book. It is such a densely crafted, beautiful book that I wanted all four chapters printed in the bulletin. Arlene, I'm glad we didn't do that. We would have spent a long time here. But just because every, every sentence matters, and so there are so many themes that we could pull out of this book. And what I don't want to have happen is when I stand up here and I talk about a theme that we all go, oh, that's what I get out of the book. Because it's only a sliver, it's just a tiny portion of what we can get out of the book. And so I'd love to encourage you, I know it's summer, but I'm just gonna give you homework. And I'll probably do this for the next month. And do it if you want, you don't have to do it. It's just totally optional. But I would say, Ruth, such a small book, four chapters, you can read it in a very short amount of time. Read it and we could do things like each time you read it, you look at the story through the eyes of a different character. Choose Naomi, choose Ruth, choose Boaz, choose the crowd of women of Bethlehem or the elders at the city gate. But look each time with different eyes at each of these characters. We could also go through and we could go trace geographical themes, which surprisingly I'm not doing today, although I will do a little head nod to it. Or in how many chapters, which is pretty much all of them, are there connections and hints and links back to the book of Genesis? And so therefore, what does that mean? What is the author of Ruth doing by, by triggering little memories and adding all these hyperlinks in to earlier stories? Again, I'll do a head nod to that, but we're not really gonna spend all of our time on that. We could look at the use of numbers because numbers are super significant and they're quite symbolic in this book. So we could do numbers. Uh, we could look at names. What do all the names mean? That is a super fun one. Also, I'm going to resist. Um, and repetition of words. So in the book of Ruth, the word return is repeated over and over. In fact, it is Sometimes there's clusters where in only a couple verses, return is mentioned over and over and over. The unfortunate thing is because we're reading through translation, in English, the repetition doesn't always come up because in English, we tend to like variety. And so we use things like return, return to, go back to, right? But it's in Hebrew, the exact same word repeated over and over and over. And when you have a dense concentration of repeated words, you go, why is, why is that? They had options in Hebrew, why repeat that? And you start to go, well, that word return is, it's heavy with expectation of 
changing your mind or some kind of spiritual transformation that is happening, a restored relationship with God. Um, also not going to track that one down. So you have all kinds of options to go and pull through these really beautiful layers that are in the book of Ruth. I chose a narrative theology because I'm leaning heavy into the idea that this is a mixed tape. And I am also of the generation in which such things existed. And the songs we put on mixtapes usually had a memory connected to it. And so I was looking at all these gorgeous things, totally overwhelmed with needing to preach four chapters in a short sermon. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to choose one that reminds me of you, of the congregation of resurrection. And so I'm, gonna, I'm using you as my base for which layer I am going to pull out. And this layer, using this narrative theology, it's looking at the beauty, the craftsmanship of the actual composition of this book. And I am focusing on a word that is repeated that is hesed. And I know it's super annoying when people get up and you're like, the Hebrew and the Greek word is. But in this case, I have to say, it has to be hesed. You have to say it in Hebrew because there's no English equivalent to this word. If we were to open up lots of English Bibles, we would see people go with things like um, loyalty, I think is what is used in the translation in your bulletin. Loving kindness, because that's super clear. We all know what loving kindness is, right? No, that's bizarre. Uh, so loyalty, love, kindness, loving kindness. Those all sound really nice. Hesed isn't so nice. It is extraordinarily beautiful in a dense, cutting, diamond kind of way. It's a covenantal term. It's always associated with this agreement between people or people and God. It is extreme loyalty to the nth degree. It is refusing to change your mind or to give up on a promise even when it is inconvenient. It holds on to portions of love, but not the feeling of gushy love, the feeling of sacrificial love. This covenant loyalness is what hesed is. And in the Hebrew Bible, God is always hesed. He is the perfect example of hesed. And the invitation is always for God's people to respond to him in the same way. Just mimic, reflect God, be his character in the world around you, be Chesed. And so I want to pull on that theme throughout the book of Ruth. And some of the verses I'm going to read are not actually here. So maybe another challenge. So as we do these stories, the mixtape stories, um, some of the stories we're doing, like next week we're doing David and Goliath, which is an entire chapter of many, many, many verses. Um, it's not the habit here at Resurrection but bring your Bibles this summer. Like when you remember, I know, cause it's not habitual, we don't remember to do it, but just so that we have the option of reading all the in-between little bits and pieces. So that would be my encouragement, but I brought mine, so I'll read them out loud. Um, so first we're going to establish the when and the where for the book of Ruth. So when, this is given to us in Ruth chapter one, verse one, in the days when the judges ruled. 
which for you, the reader, if that doesn't bring up a whole series of what that actually means, you should go read Judges chapter 2. It will tell you the summary version of what's going on with the Israelites when the judges ruled. Basically, it's a, it's a series of the Israelite society fraying apart at the edges and Israelite leadership tanking. And so the entire book of Judges is this spiral, this swirl that goes downward. And like a lot of stories, you can tell the health of a society by looking at how that society treats people who are marginalized. And in the book of Judges, if you read what happens to the women in the book of Judges, at the beginning, when the Israelite society is quite healthy, you have strong women like Deborah. And by the time we get to the end of this swirl, this whirlwind to the bottom, you see women being trampled on and killed and used as tokens. And it is a dramatic example of the fraying apart of society. That is the context. Things have gone awry. Okay, so that's the when. And we get throughout the book of Ruth this um, in the background is this larger story of the book of Judges, uh, what's going on in the development of Israelite society. And in the foreground, we get the personalized stories of individuals. And so we're going to read those in tension with each other. Okay, where? Where's the book? Well, this is interesting. Uh, we get a lot of Bethlehem mentioning here, uh, which I explained is just five miles south of Jerusalem. It's on the hill country. It looks into the wilderness and it looks into farming territory and it straddles both of those places. What's interesting is the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And we start with a famine. So there's a little of this ironic situ situating the story in the house of bread when there is a famine. But it also takes place, a portion of the book takes place in Moab. And so we have an Israelite family that leaves Bethlehem and goes to Moab. And when they go to Moab, the sons of the family marry Moabite women. And that, as the reader of the text, reading it with the long history that comes before it should be like, ding, 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 like red flag, red flag. Like we in our history, in Israelite history, the Moabites were the ones that often led Israelites into sin and apostasy. And so as we watch this family, there's like a, this Israelite family as they have their own personal exodus out of the land that God has given them, and they go to Moab, and then there's going to be a return, and we're looking for restoration. It's also quite interesting, as a Deuteronomy person, I would say there's something interesting because although they go to Moab, these conversations of return and going back into the land, in the Hebrew text it says it happens on the plains of Moab, which is the location of where the Israelites were situated like in the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses is casting vision for going in and living a covenantal life with God in the place where they are going. So that's the, the when and the where. So I'd like to start in chapter one, but just a couple verses prior to the ones that are in your bulletin. Because we have at the very beginning, although this move has been made into uh, Moab and the sons have married Moabite women, 
and our senses are all heightened and we're alert to this. Shortly after that, all the men die, which means the three women that we're looking at, so that would be Naomi and then her daughters-in-law, are in an extremely vulnerable place because they are now in a patriarchal society. They don't fit into the household of any person, which means there is no one looking out for them, which means they're at the mercy of their communities to actually take care of them. And Naomi realizes the Moabites are not really her community. And so she should probably go back to where she's from and maybe just perhaps, who knows, her own people will take care of her. And so I'm gonna read starting in verse six, it says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you chesed, my Bible says kindness, but it's may the Lord, our Lord, like the God of the Israelites, may he show you hesed as you have shown to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then we get into the passage that is printed in your bulletin. When we see with Naomi, when she says in the second half of verse 13, when she's trying to persuade them to go back. And she says, no, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Naomi, as we read in the story, Naomi is someone that anyone who has experienced uh, trauma or heartbreak very easily relates to. Because in Naomi, we get the voice of um, lament. And not only lament, but it's protest. It's like a lament and a protest against God. And she's the one who can voice that for us in the passage, which is something really beautiful to recognize that the voicing of lament and protest is not an act of not having enough faith. It's actually leaning into the faith and crying out and calling out God to respond in return. So we've seen her tell her daughters-in-law, may God act with great hesed, even though in my life, my life is full of bitterness and we're going to return. Orpah decides that's probably good. She turns and leaves. It's actually the logical decision to make because it's only in her returning and going home that her parents can arrange another marriage for her so that she is taken care of, so that she gets a land inheritance, so that she has children who can take care of her in her old age. It's Ruth who makes the surprising choice. It's Ruth who, who says what is illogical and we're not told why. We're left with this big question. If you read any of the commentaries from the early church fathers all the way up to modern day, people answer this question, why? Why would Ruth do this? And it, it must, I don't know, my guess in all of this, right, is there is something Ruth has learned in the 10 years of living with Naomi and the men of Naomi's family. 
that makes her feel more loyal to the God of the Israelites than all of the gods of Moab. And so Ruth comes out with her great statement that I imagine you're familiar with. When she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This, this fierce explanation of great loyalty. We don't have any kind of record in the ancient Near East of what you have to do to become, to like convert or to be accepted by another ethnicity, another group of people. But we do know that in the ancient Near East, where God, the gods you worshiped, the land you belong to, and the family you belong to are the three biggest pillars that establish your identity. Here we have Ruth saying, I will give up home, land, gods in order to go and be with you. And in her own way, she is taking on a pledge to cut and sever all ties of her bloodline in order to take on the Israelite bloodline and the Israelite way of life and the Israelite God. And this is no small promise because as she does this, which requires that she will live as a widow with her mother-in-law. So she's joining forces with another powerless person in society. That's what she's taking on for herself. And she says, and I'll do it even unto death. Like I will die wherever it is that you die. I'm in it for the long haul. So at the end of this chapter, they arrive back in Bethlehem. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. So the barley harvest, and this is one of those things we have to remember, that in this time of people doing subsistence living, meaning they're growing the food they get to eat the whole rest of the year. So you have two very vulnerable women who don't have land rights and so are not going to be able to have their own harvest of their own land, have a small window of time in which they can go and glean and gather enough food and whatever they gather in those weeks has to sustain them the whole rest of the year. And Ruth takes that on herself. Basically, two mouths to feed based on whatever she can glean in a field. So this is the setting in chapter two is the gleaning in the fields. And so now we're going to meet Boaz. Boaz is the complete opposite to these two women. He's male, he's a landowner, and he's wealthy. And so he has every power structure at his command, basically. So he is in the position of power. And when he comes out to inspect the work that is going on in his fields, and he asks his servant, so who is this? Who does this young woman belong to? Meaning, in which patriarchal house does this woman belong? And the servant, it's interesting, never uses her name, but always uses a description. She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. So he's complimenting her and her work ethic, but he's also pointing to the fact that she's the foreigner. She's the other who happens to be here. So 
when Boaz goes, he actually approaches Ruth with uh, great respect and is going to actually provide a much nicer way for her to reap and to gather up enough barley for herself and for Naomi. And in verse 10, we see Ruth's surprise at this. She fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? She is also reflecting the acknowledgement of her role in that society. And this is interesting. This is going to be my head nod to Genesis 1. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And I just, just pause just for a second because that's so beautiful in my mind. Because before the journey, when Naomi told her daughters-in-law, May the Lord act with hesed towards you. What we see is that in Bethlehem, it's Ruth acting with hesed towards Naomi. That type of intense loyalty that doesn't give up, that is there until the end, even when it's inconvenient. And the community seems to have noticed. And Boaz notices. I've seen what you've done. There's a recognition of her hesed. And then he says this, so he has noticed how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. This is almost a word-for-word -word quote of a Genesis story. And I know we don't do this call and response type thing, but is there a story coming to mind? Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, this is what Abraham does. And so now we have Boaz, a leader of an Israelite community, looking at Ruth and going, I recognize our patriarchs in you. That's really quite amazing. That kind of loyalty that you're going to follow the God of the Israel by doing what Abraham and Sarah did before. And then he goes on. May the Lord reward you for your deeds. May you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And this was because I know, Philip, you love birding. And there's probably others who do too. Bird imagery in the Bible is so good. And wings and God's character as one who protects, who stretches out wings is all throughout the Psalms. And it's all throughout Ezekiel. And we see Jesus himself talking about the city of Jerusalem and how he longs to be a hen who gathers his chicks or her chicks under his wings, her wings. Right? So, so this kind of imagery is, is rich and is really dense and is a beautiful thing to go trace this week if you want to. But this is, Boaz is saying, may the God of Israel, like you are coming to seek refuge under his wings and may he protect you. Okay, so when Ruth goes home and tells Naomi about her interaction with Boaz, Naomi recognizes in Boaz his great hesed, that he is now the one acting with great loyalty, this fierce covenantal love. Okay, so now we get to chapter 3. So in chapter 3, and again, so many beautiful things we could trace that it's killing me that we're not. 
But we have in the beginning, we have Naomi telling Ruth, wash your face, turn, you know, wear, put on new clothes. And again, it's one of those details where people are like, why? Like, does she have to go entice Boaz? It's probably more along the lines of she's been wearing all of the physical markers of being a widow. And Naomi going, change your clothes. Like, make sure you're signaling that you're no longer mourning, but you could get married. It's a guess. So Ruth is going to go out to Boaz, who is sleeping with lots of other people. When you go to the threshing floor, there are gigantic sections of big open rock. And everyone, like families, use one portion of the threshing floor to, to harvest their wheat. And so at night, because that's your family fortune in the open air at night, the head of the family, or several, all sleep around your food just to make sure there's no thieves that come in the night to steal all of your food. So Boaz is there, as would be expected, and Ruth goes and lays at his feet. Okay, so at chapter 3, starting with what's in your bulletin, verse 8, at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are the next of kin. And here again, a beautiful play on words in the Hebrew. Because that word cloak is actually the word corner. Um, thinking of the shape of the garments and how it's actually the corner of your garment. She's saying, spread the corner of your garment over the top of me. It just happens to also be the exact same word for wing, like the wing of a bird. And so in this really beautiful artistic way, now we have Boaz who said, may the Lord bless you, the Lord whose wing you are under to find shelter. And now we have Ruth going, Boaz, you be that wing. And you put your wing over me and cover me with your cloak. In other words, take on the character of God because you are the redeemer for my family. It's this really beautiful kind of play on words. And so Boaz recognizes that that is the role that he will take, although there's some business transactions that have to happen first before we get to chapter four. Now chapter four, right before the verses in your bulletin, Boaz is meeting with all the elders of the city and they're in the city gate. And so they're doing this, like he's basically saying, I want to take on the responsibility of Naomi and Ruth um, and I will till their ground, I will buy their ground and that will be their family and that will support their family. And then in verse 11, it says, then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Rachel and Leah, matriarchs, some great respected matriarchs. So the elders now looking at Boaz and saying, may this woman coming into your home be one who builds the nation in the way our great matriarchs did. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman. May, so Boaz, may your name continue to be known 
through the descendants of this particular woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Ah, good. Okay, so it's another Genesis narrative, right? And if you don't know Perez, and if you don't know Tamar, your homework is to go read it. Why is that important? Because Tamar is exceptional. Through church history, we kind of blow her off as a prostitute, but she wasn't a prostitute. She dressed like a prostitute to make sure the patriarchy of Israel did what they were required to do according to the covenant with God. And at the end, Judah calls her more righteous than I. And in an interesting turn, Tamar is also a Canaanite, an outsider, through whom she's connected to the Israelites, through whom we get to Perez. And all the people, like we get this marriage ceremony and Ruth has a child and we have God. So it says in verse 13 in your bulletin, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. And the whole rest of the way down, it's all women in the town. We don't see Boaz anymore, which is really interesting. It's the women of the town and Naomi and Ruth who are together, who are being reflected here. And the women of the town look at Naomi, who at the beginning of the story is calling herself bitter because God's hand has been against me. And now through the hesed of Ruth, through the hesed of Boaz, she now with a child on her lap is brought back to fullness and is being restored back into the fullness of the community. And the women of the city in verse 15 say, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, remember the foreigner, the Moabite, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. And so the women look at what Ruth has done and they're like, ah, oh, our society tells us, right, sons are just better than daughters. They get the land inheritance, they get the control of all things, but Ruth in her hesed, is better than seven numbers, so think completion, the complete fullness of all these sons you could have, Ruth and what she has done is even more of a blessing to you than that. And then we can't forget the genealogy. So the little tiny genealogy is right here at the very end. She has a son, they name him Obed. He becomes the father of Jesse, the father of David. And the verses we left off, much to my chagrin, but again, for, for space's sake, is the actual genealogy that is listed in the next few verses. We have um, an allergy towards genealogies, right? Because we're like, blah, 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 blah. There's no action in this <laughs> at all. Except that for the ancient writers of the text, genealogies were action because each name is an entire package of a story. And so what they're doing is they're saying, this story connects to this story, another person's name, connects to this story, connects to this story. And in this case, we're getting all the way down. We start with Perez and we get all the way down to David. And for the writer of Ruth, this is a great big, huge old explanation point. Because how did we begin the book of Ruth? In the time of the judges. 
in the time of the judges when everything was falling apart and Israelite society is fraying apart at the edges. The way the Israelites were supposed to be acting with chesed, we see reflected in a foreign woman who becomes the mirror and the example to an Israelite community of God's own character. In the time of the judges, when all things are falling apart and we desperately need a righteous leader, we have the promise through Ruth and through Boaz two people of extraordinary hesed, we get the promise of David, who is going to be the great king. This is something that is not missed. This idea, one, that when we look at God's actions in the book of Ruth, he only, the writer only explicitly points to his actions twice. Once in the beginning, when God provides food for people in Bethlehem, and once at the end, when God causes Ruth to conceive and have a child. However, we see God reflected continually throughout the story, through the personal lives of people like Ruth and Boaz, who are not chesed once, but are taking on an entire lifestyle of being chesed all the time, even when it is super inconvenient to do so. And so we get that promise of David, and the New Testament writers are going to pick up on it, and some of them, like Matthew, have a great affinity for including genealogy. In fact, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy, and the genealogy is focused around both Abraham, patriarchs, and around David, king. And then Matthew goes, but it continues to the end, to the ultimate king, who is Jesus. And Matthew is going to include Tamar, and he's going to include Ruth to say the roles in, of those two women in that genealogy, along with others, is essential to get us to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, I mean, we, we're talking like when we look at what are we seeing in Ruth, and we're seeing this characteristic of God reflected through the lives of people. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he is God in flesh. And what do we see Jesus doing? He works with extraordinary hesed towards people, gathering people who are on the margins and restoring them back into the community. He's a radical inclusioner. Inclusioner? But you know what I mean. He includes, gathers, he's a gatherer of people and a restorer of people. And so this is when I go, you know, what, what does it look like? What does hesed look like? Well, in our New Testament passage, as people go, just give us the basic bottom line, like what is it we're supposed to do? Love God, love people. What does that mean? We look at Ruth, we look at Boaz, we look at Jesus. We look around in resurrection, and this is when I was thinking of this theme specifically for all of you. Because I start looking around and I'm like, you know what, we have people silently, just kind of off to the side, not super flashy, who are hosting refugee families. I believe we now have two that our church is, is helping to bring into the community. There are people who show up and feed those who are not housed in with Emmanuel and with small things. We have people in this community showing up sometimes in very 
normal life ways. It's not flashy because it's not like temple, palace. It's in normal everyday life. And I think that is the right kind of embodiment of what Hesed is. And we get this story in Ruth, and I think we are encouraged in modern day to work hand in hand with the God of Hesed, the God who is always busy, who is creating something new, who is building a kingdom that is beautiful and has hands and arms wide open and saying, would you like to participate in that work with me? And that's our invitation. We can join him in that work and be like Ruth and be like Boaz in exhibiting Hesed to each other in this community and then to our neighborhood in Philadelphia. Will you pray with me? Holy God, there is something mind-boggling about looking at you, looking at characteristics of who you are, this fiery, righteous, powerful, tender, loving, beautiful God, extending an invitation to us to participate in the goodness of what you are doing and how that goodness can be demonstrated in daily life. And it doesn't have to be something that is big and flashy and changing the world in one go. But it is something that we are continually working at. And as this week continues to unfold, I just pray that you give us the eyes to see who you are, to follow the Holy Spirit into our community and neighborhoods, to have the right kind of eyes and eyesight, to see the things you are doing, and may we be and do likewise so that we can be as much like you as possible. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.